This podcast is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is a leading provider of PV inverter solutions around the world, and it's meeting the growing calls for deep decarbonization with constant innovation. SunGrow was able to deliver its technology on time during the pandemic while also keeping an eye toward what the future of clean energy will need. Learn more about SunGrow's cutting-edge R&D at sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by SeaPower. SeaPower has a new book. It's called Demand Side Energy Management in the Time of COVID. It takes a peek into eight of the biggest commercial industries in North America and reveals key energy management strategies that organizations executed during the pandemic. Authored by 19 SeaPower experts with a combined total of more than 300 years of energy experience, the book is a must-have resource for any commercial and industrial organization striving to optimize energy use in 2021. Visit thecpowerway.com slash 2021 to download this new book. Green Tech Media Podcasts. This week, we have another edition of What It Takes featuring, well, yours truly. What's it like being on the show now, now that you're on it? I'm nervous. (laughs) I'm always nervous when someone's interviewing me. I ordinarily don't like to talk about myself that much. I would prefer to profile other people. But back in December, Powerhouse CEO Emily Kirsch interviewed me for a special holiday edition of What It Takes. And we talked in front of an audience about my career in journalism, how the world of podcasting has evolved, and about my own entrepreneurial journey launching a production company. So this week, we're sharing that conversation with you. Yeah, it, t- it usually takes me a good like five minutes or so to kind of settle in. Um, but this feels very meta to be interviewing the interview master. So I just want you to know how much admiration and respect I have for for you and everything that I've learned from you in this podcast journey. So, so thank you again for saying yes. Thank you so much. Honored. Now, before we get to that, I've got a great piece of news. What It Takes is now a spinoff series. That's right. In 2021, we are profiling a ton more entrepreneurs and executives who are building the next generation of climate tech companies, and we're evolving the format to tell their stories in an even deeper way. It's going to be hosted by Emily Kirsch, who you hear regularly conducting these interviews. You can go to whatever podcast app that you're on right now, search for What It Takes, W-A-T-T, What It Takes, and tap that subscribe button. And throughout the year, we're going to help inspire and challenge you with a bunch of new chronicles in climate tech entrepreneurship. Okay, now with some hesitation and trepidation, here is Emily's conversation with me. All right. Back to you and where you were born, which is in rural New Hampshire. Your mom worked at a steel fabrication plant where she was the only woman in a company uh, of of men uh, for pretty much her entire time there. She worked her way up from a secretary to a general manager to a vice president and managed 60 men while raising you and your brother. Uh, What influence did your parents have on you? Both parents were very influential. My mom definitely gave me the a window into what it was like to be a really hard worker and was a role model for, um, I think, a, a very strong woman. And she worked in a male-dominated industry, played um, a you know hard-nosed manager role and a mother to um, a lot of steel fabrication workers and worked tirelessly, really long hours. Um, And it was only really later in life that I realized I picked up a lot of my work ethic from her. So having that as an example um, was really influential. My father was a forester and then he went into real estate. And so being in the forest, I would go onto property and go, you know, look, he would 
help me name trees and we would go run the boundaries of properties in the woods of New Hampshire. And so that gave me an early exposure to being out in nature constantly. So the two of them uh, had very direct roles in, in my interests and behaviors. Um, as a teenager, as you described it, you were privately rebellious, which I love that description, but also very studious. And as you said, constantly outdoors. Who was Stephen Lacey in high school and what role did movies and the media play in your life at that time? Well, I'm a typical Gemini, so I have two personalities. <laughs> One is the professional personality that people in school in high school and in college and parents would see. And then the other is the more rebellious side. Um, so a lot of people are surprised by that when they see me in my natural habitat, when the mic isn't turned on or I'm not in a classroom. High school was really influential for me because that's when I got into filmmaking. I got my first access to cameras and first exposure to script writing. And we had a small group of people in high school who were really into um, making films and doing it very seriously. I mean, we look back on them now and they're not particularly good, but we had a management structure in place to actually create things. And we had regular meetings and we would plan them out. And so it wasn't to us like this fun little thing we would do off in the woods. We were really serious about it. So that early exposure um, made me super passionate about media and storytelling pretty early on. It's all, it's all coming together. You graduated from Franklin Pierce University, a small university in your home state of New Hampshire in 2006 with a degree in journalism with a focus in digital media production. You lived with your parents and commuted all four years of college and your peers saw you as very studious and kind of straight edge. Um, why, why journalism and what were your college years like? Well, I was into the idea of fiction writing and producing films. And I initially went because I wanted to get into filmmaking. Franklin Pierce had just gotten a massive investment into a new digital media center. So they had all these huge editing bays, a lot of access to equipment, and they were giving freshmen immediate access to that equipment. So I knew I could build something right away. But what I realized is that I'm not very good at fiction writing. I'm good at story construction and understanding what makes a good story. But Ultimately, like the creative juices weren't flowing very well. And so I would look back at stuff that I was doing and I wasn't very happy with it. But I was really good at talking to people and I was really interested in news and politics from a pretty early age. And once I realized that like I could draw out other people's stories and use those same kind of techniques to develop uh, nonfiction stories and documentary style stories and interviews, that was really when it clicked for me. Um, while in college, you interned for Talk Radio News Service, where you covered congressional hearings and White House press briefings. You were only 19 years old, yet you had a pass to go basically anywhere in Congress, and you took advantage of it by attending every congressional hearing that you could. You told me that your most joyous moment of this internship was attending the correspondence dinner. What happened at that dinner, and how did this internship at 19 years old shape your career? I mean, it was really the window into everything else that came. Uh, because they, their business model required interns to do all the work. So it was really one person who directed an army of interns to go gather tape around Washington, D.C., cut that tape and then send it out to news segments on talk radio stations. And then she would get on at the end of the day or in the morning 
and talk about what was happening in D.C. So I got to go to all sorts of hearings all around Congress. I had just free reign anywhere I wanted to go. Um, and I, the, every day it was a new assignment, um, both at think tanks and on Capitol Hill. So uh, I, got, I, I was under pressure to have familiarity with the tech. I had to get the tape right. I had to select the right tape and know how to cut it so that we could send it to the radio stations. And then at the end of that internship, I got this opportunity to um, attend the White House Correspondents' Dinner with the presidential motorcade. So part of my responsibilities was going to the White House press briefings, gathering tape there, and then going down into the tiny little studio in the basement and sending that off. Um, during the day that we went to the press briefing, the, or the White House Correspondents' Dinner, uh, I got to sit in the White House all day, hang around with, you know, the camera people and the journalists, you know, many of these folks are real cowboys. They're, they're like crusty cowboys who've been there for 30 years and they kind of sit around sharing war stories and uh, chewing the cud, so to speak. And I got, I got this kind of backstage exposure to how it really works on the media side, which was super influential. At the end of the day, the presidential motorcade ran up and outruns the White House staff and outruns the press pool. And we got in the different cars and George W. Bush is a few cars up from me. And we pull up to the hotel and out we run and we're getting into the building. We rush through security and on my right is Condoleezza Rice. And on my left is then um, uh, White House Chief of Staff, Andy Card. And for me, it was exciting because I had exposure to these people with power, but I got to see how they were interacting with each other. I got to see how the inside of the process worked. And it was like, oh, these people are just human beings, just like anybody else. And so it actually took away the luster a little bit in a, in a healthy way. Um, and I, I, that, I think getting exposure to that early on helped me realize like the humanness to people, even people in power. Uh, following graduation in 2006, you got a job as editor and producer at the online magazine Renewable Energy World, where you were paid an annual salary of $25,000 to start your first podcast, which was called Inside Renewable Energy. Where did your interest at that time in renewable energy come from um, and 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 your, your experience with podcasting? Like how similar or different was that from the internship work? Now that I'm thinking of it, I think it was it was twenty seven thousand dollars, and uh, it sounds low now, but it's probably more than most podcasters make. So, <laughs> good point. Good so point. Uh, it it was a really amazing experience because, like the talk radio news ser service internship, I was just thrown into it. I had a real passion for the environment and environmental science, even though if I, even though I wasn't great at the environmental science part of it. It was something that was really interesting to me. So environmentalism had played an influential role, but I knew nothing about clean tech. I knew nothing about the energy business. It was not something that was really on my radar. In fact, I was applying for, you know, local newspaper jobs. I was willing to report on basically anything. Um, and I applied to talk radio stations. I mean, really any kind of exposure that I could get. And there was a, a small outfit in Peterborough, New Hampshire called Renewable Energy Access at the time. They had started in the late 90s called Solar Access. They were the first uh, true business publication covering the early solar industry and then later renewables. And the uh, CEO and the co-founder, Jim Callahan, who was a real mentor of mine, had launched uh, an early podcast and they had been experimenting with it. And 
they needed someone to ramp it up and take it on full time. And so uh, I was like, okay, I think I can do this. I had been doing, I'd been the manager of the radio station uh, in college. And uh, I went in and they took a gamble on me. I mean, I had never made a podcast. I didn't know anything about clean tech, but they said like, uh, we just need a young person who thinks they can do this and we're going to give you rain to do this. And um, once again, I was, I was thrown into the deep end and um, that's how I got my start in clean tech. I had to force myself to learn every single day and really, you know, uncover very complicated subjects and communicate those quickly. Mm, it sounds familiar for, I think, every person who has come up in this industry. Um, five years later, you joined the Center for American Progress, uh, the progressive think tank, where you were hired as deputy editor, providing progressive commentary on climate science and politics. You were there for just under two years before leaving to join Green Tech Media, where from 2013 to 2018, you were editor in chief, during which time you launched both the Energy Gang and the Interchange podcasts. Um, why did you leave Center for American Progress and what led you to Green Tech Media? Well, what led me to Center for American Progress was this desire to talk more about climate change. So at Renewable Energy World, it was purely focused on the business of renewables, which was very attractive to me. I always liked the business lens and I was comfortable there. But there was a broader climate conversation that was really starting to materialize in Washington. And I liked the idea of talking about climate politics and climate science. When I got there, I absolutely loved everyone at the Center for American Progress. And I had a great relationship with my boss, Joe Rome, at the time. But what I was a little concerned about, and ultimately one of the reasons why I left, was that a lot of that information gathering was seen through the lens of like how to operationalize information in service of political ends. And I didn't really feel comfortable doing that. I mean, I still had this kind of traditional journalist um, feeling like I, I I didn't like the idea of disseminating information for a political party. Um, and while I'm, I do fall on the left side of the spectrum, I was, I just, I, I don't really fall into any particular party, so to speak. So I left with the desire to go back into business reporting because I felt like that's where a lot of the momentum was happening. And I had been following Green Tech Media since the early days. I mean, they launched in 2007 and they were immediately on my radar and I was constantly reading them. And they had this really fresh take on how the money was moving around, how deals were getting developed, how companies were growing. And that spoke to me. And that's why I moved back from sort of the political side into the business side. Um, in your first year at, at Green Tech Media in 2013, you launched the Energy Gang. How did the podcast come to be? Well, Scott Clavenna, who is the, C the former CEO and the co-founder of Green Tech Media, had been playing around with a podcast. And it was an interview show, and it wasn't quite landing. Um, and I joined, and we were both talking about, okay, what kind of audio can we do? He knew he was all amped up on podcasts. And he knew that I really wanted to launch a show as well. But we didn't really have a good idea, and so we let it slide for a little while. And then one day I got a call from Jigger Shah and I was, you know, really nervous when Jigger called me and he's like, Hey, I had listened to your podcasts for the last five years. That Do was you a really good Jigger invitation. <laughs> he hey. just said it, you know, he just called me up and he's like, Hey, I want to start a podcast. What do you do? I, you know, and we had, 
talked about podcasts in the past, um, you know, at, at conferences, like we'd had some back and forth. And we both listened to the Slate Political Gab Fest, which was one of the first political roundtable shows that's still ongoing. One of the first shows I ever listened to, a really fantastic model. You have three experts, journalists who are talking about a particular subject, and you develop a relationship with those three people who are talking about what's in the news. And he was like, why don't we just follow that model? Why don't we talk about what's going on in the business world of clean tech or in politics and bring the three same co-hosts on and just see what happens? Um, we had been working with Catherine Hamilton at the time, who's our other co-host, on a bunch of grid stuff. So she was at the Gridwise Alliance at the time. We were developing a new grid edge business at Green Tech Media, and we had had a lot of relationships, and we were developing projects with her. And she was like the perfect fit because she knew the policy world really well, and she knew the grid tech side of things. You know, she'd, she'd been in venture capital, in um, in she'd been a line woman early in her career. She knew the policy landscape very well. So she was just like the perfect well-rounded person to bring on as the third co-host. And that's how it came together. It didn't land well at first, but then people developed a relationship with us and that built over time. What did it, what did it sound like in the early days? Well, it was terrible. We were all on Skype, (laughs) recorded on one stream. So instead of like three separate tracks, I mean, just really basic stuff that seems so silly now, but we just recorded a Skype call together. I actually recorded myself locally, but Jigger and Catherine were on a Skype line. We were, you know, sometimes the VoIP line would like get really terrible and it just, the quality isn't good. But I cringe listening to myself. I mean, you can listen to all these. If you want to go back way in the feed, you can hear how different the show is. Um, I was so nervous. I had just been doing interviews for a long time. So I was nervous about being a host that had to have a take or at least had to facilitate takes in real time. So I showed up and I had like these pages of notes that I wanted to read and I had these intros and the intros are way too long. And then like the points I want to make, I'm so nervous about Jigger coming after me that I like have to have (laughs) like three pages of rebuttals. And then over time, you just get more comfortable with the dynamic and you let the dynamic kind of feed you into what you're going to talk about and so that that took about a year to really evolve but uh that you know it doesn't sound very good compared to what you hear today <laughs> speaking of being afraid of jigger coming after you i learned something in preparation for this podcast that shook me which is you and jigger is your antagonism between each other is intentional. It stressed me out so much. And I was like, man, are they okay? And now I know that it was actually intentional. So I appreciate that, that secret to success of kind of like people like, you know, most people like it. I don't know. It was tough for me, but I'm happy to know that it's all with love. It is intentional and very much with love. (laughs) And at first, Jigger would have these long takes that we were unsure how to respond to because Catherine and I hadn't really developed the relationship with like, how much do we push back? And then... I, I just realized like, okay, every time Jigger makes a point, I'm just going to try to disagree with him. <laughs> and we, we we talked through that and it became very explicit. And so a lot of the arguments back and forth are very real in real time. They're not planned, but we have an agreement that like, we're probably just going to say, no, you're wrong. Or here's, here's why I see this differently and try to create some kind of drama. I mean, then that's really what's important. The differences between the characters are what make people want to listen. It's not just the information. It's that you're saddling up to the kitchen table with people who have slightly different perspectives and you want to hear how those differing perspectives um, uh, react to each other. Before we go on, let's take a quick break here and talk about our supporters of the show. We're brought to you by 
Sea Power. Sea Power has a new book out. It's called Demand Side Energy Management in the Time of COVID, and it takes a peek into eight of the biggest commercial industries in North America to reveal energy management strategies that successful organizations have used during this very wild year. The book breaks down the demand response and demand management programs available in five of the nation's open energy markets, as well as those offered by several of the largest electric utilities in USD regulated markets. It's authored by 19 Sea Power experts. And boy, oh boy, do they have a combined total of a lot of years, 300 years of energy experience. So this is a must-have resource for any commercial industrial organization striving to optimize energy use in 2021. Visit the show notes. We've got a link right there where you can get the book or go to the Power Way, thecpowerway.com slash 2021. We're also brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. It's also a leader in decarbonization. SunGrow joined the RE100 with a commitment to switch its global power needs to 100% renewable energy by 2028. And you can bet those renewable energy projects are going to be powered by SunGrow inverters. Beyond ensuring its factories are powered by solar, SunGrow has also invested in electric buses to move its staff around facilities in China, and that earned SunGrow China's national standard for green factories. SunGrow is innovating in its own operations and innovating out in the field to build cutting-edge solar projects everywhere. To learn more about SunGrow's products, go to sungrowpower.com. Um, you were 22 years old when, as a result of all this podcasting, people started calling you the pod father, which I love, um, and asking to take pictures with you at conferences. What is it like to be a celebrity in our industry? Did you ever feel uh, like you had imposter syndrome early on? And, and if so, what was that like? I have pictures that people took uh, that are like posted on Facebook or like they're they're buried away somewhere. I always felt like, okay, I'm reaching people, but this is kind of a niche industry and I never, ever let it get to my head. I mean, I've always had perspective on that kind of thing. And, and I listen, I'm a heavy, heavy listener to podcasts. So I understand what it means to have a relationship with someone you listen to all the time. So I never let that create an outsized impact on um, like how I felt about myself. It was very fulfilling because people would say, oh, I got a job in the industry because I listened to the show and and I use this information in my job interview or like you help me with my market research. That stuff is so fulfilling and it will always be fulfilling. Um, you know, what's interesting is that like I'm I've kind of have this niche celebrity, but it has expanded a bit because like the climate and clean tech world has expanded dramatically over the years. So the my presence has changed a little bit, but I have n never let that impact the mission or made me feel like uh, too big for my britches. I'm, I've always keep kept it into perspective. Mm. Did you face feelings of imposter syndrome early on? Imposter syndrome, yes, definitely. Uh, that's that's the big part of the question. So all the time, I mean, I, I have the imposter syndrome in my entrepreneurship journey now, which we can talk about. But early on, I was forced to sound like an expert on topics that I didn't really know 
much about. And the, the real art was like trying to figure out how to get enough information so that I sounded smart enough and could hang with people who were, you know, truly immersed in this stuff. And uh, that, that imposter syndrome guided me. It was my real motivation my, into getting better and better. Um, I have a great story about Ira Ehrenpreis, who's a really famous investor. And early on in my career, he they launched like this massive fund and they had invested in Tesla. This was in 2006. Um, or maybe it was early 2007. And I'm on the phone with him and I'm trying to sound smart and ask him questions. And he's like, do you know how venture capital works? Like, let me just tell you like how it actually works. And he wasn't he wasn't being mean or anything. It was just very clear that like, oh, I was a little out of my depth in terms of understanding how the fund worked and everything. And uh, so I had moments like that and it made, and it kind of kicked me down a couple notches, but you just use it as your motivation. Um, your your co-hosts on the Energy Gang are Catherine Hamilton and Trigger Shaw, as you've said. What is it like to work with them? Um, given as long as you have worked with them, what do you want them to know? Oh, they are some of the most delightful collaborators and friends that I've ever had the pleasure of knowing and working with. And we truly like each other. We truly respect each other. We have a good creative dynamic in that we know our roles on the show. And so it makes selecting topics and figuring out the direction of the show very easy. And the amount of time and commitment that they've put into it, I mean, it requires a lot of their time and I mean, I could not speak highly enough of the dedication that they have also put into the show. So that relationship is truly special. Um, they're awesome. So I think the it's a beautiful shout out to them. Um, two years after launching the Energy Gang in 2015, you launched the Interchange with Shale Khan, who I think you perfectly describe as the Ezra Klein of clean tech. How did the Interchange come about? Um, and what is it really like working with Shale? Someone wrote on LinkedIn the other day that uh, the description of the interchange is the interchange is for those listeners who the energy gang isn't wonky enough. And Shale really likes to dig into numbers. He really likes to be thoughtful about having long form conversations about trends that he is thinking about. And so he was then the head, the VP of research at GTM. And we were developing a new show for subscribers only behind the paywall. And that worked well. And we experimented with a few different variations, but we realized that we could we could expand the audience dramatically and it was probably better financially to monetize the podcast publicly rather than just stick it behind a paywall and have a much smaller audience. So that was the the genesis of the show. And the the difference is that we're just we're truly trying to explore um in the most fun and wonky way possible, some of these big picture decarbonization topics. And uh, Shale is just an incredible mind. I mean, he has these conversations very often without notes. He can just very succinctly talk about topics um, without seemingly any preparation at all. And it's awe-inspiring. I mean, I cannot do that. I have to have some bullet points. I have to do some reading. I have to like kind of prepare my thoughts. Otherwise I'll just derail off and, you know, go elsewhere. But he has, he just has this succinct communication style and uh, he's a dear friend too. Um, you know, truly a, a very warm, remarkable person. So I'm very lucky having co-hosts like that, co-hosts and friends on those two shows. 
Uh, two years ago, amid the booming podcast space, you left Green Tech Media to found Postscript Audio, where you serve as executive producer of both the Energy Gang and the Interchange, which are still distributed by Green Tech Media, as well as new independent shows like A Matter of Degrees. How did you decide to take the leap to become an entrepreneur and start Postscript Audio? Well, it's a great time to be a producer because everyone's trying to figure out their audio strategy. And media companies are launching podcasts left and right. Organizations are realizing that the relationships that you create with podcast co-hosts are really strong. And so every, you know, a lot of people are listening to podcasts now and they realize how important and valuable they can be. So we were just getting a lot of inbound requ- requests on how do I make a show? You know, what should I do? What's my strategy? And it was very clear that I had this level of production expertise and management expertise to launch our own production outfit. So I, at that same time, um, in the 2017 to 2018 timeframe, there were dozens and dozens of other small shops like ours popping up. Uh, many covering different facets, different types of topics. And so there's a reason for that. And that is because audio is such a booming um, medium right now. I really felt like we had a certain level of expertise to help launch new shows. I would definitely agree with that, given our experience with what it takes. You decided not to raise capital for PostScript Audio, which is now an eight-person team. You still only pay yourself a modest salary, hopefully more than $27,000, but uh, still modest. Why did you decide not to raise capital? And then what are the biggest challenges that you've faced in launching the pod- or in launching the business over the past two years? Well, to be perfectly honest, the reason why we haven't raised money is because I think we're still figuring out the business model. We have a very successful process in place. We've got some really great shows that I'm proud of, but we're still figuring out the exact direction of like what the totality of shows that we take on. What is that going to look like? Um, the business model is still varied in terms of how we fund shows. Um, you know, we're still we our production model is very much based on raising budgets, and we're not. Uh, we're focused a lot on advertising revenue right now. And so that can be a bit of a stop-start industry. So we're trying to reorient the business to figure out how to get better recurring revenue, how to get some of our shows to even bigger scale um, and monetize those differently. And so I think in the next year or so, we're we're, you know, we're in talks now about like how to reorient the company. So that's, I think that's the reason why it was just sort of having an honest description of, or an honest take that is, we're still figuring it out. Um, over the past 12 years now, you have launched five shows that have collectively received over 11 million downloads. If you were to summarize the one thing based on all of that experience that people should know about podcasting, what would it be? Oh my gosh, so many. I mean, you have to have a plan, right? The shows that have, we've launched that have been successful, we've put a lot of thought into. We're not just setting up microphones and saying, okay, we've got two people who are good at talking here, let's do it. It's a very clear plan of why you're developing a show, how is it going to differentiate from any other show, um, what is the role of the co-hosts, how is this thing going to sound, how are you going to integrate interviews? There's a lot of thought that goes into it, just like any other complicated medium. And podcasting in general is accessible to a lot of people, which is one of its greatest strengths. But it also means that a lot of people show up thinking that they're going to set up a couple microphones and it's going to 
work great and they're going to have a hit podcast and it just doesn't work. So any of the successful shows that we've launched have had months and months of work that go into them to figure out what it is, what are we going to do with it and why is it going to land? Mm-hmm. It makes sense. Um, you, you are now an entrepreneur. <laughs> what have you learned about entrepreneurship since Law & Chain Postscript Audio? Well, uh, a lot rests on me and my idiosyncrasies and the responsibility that you have as an entrepreneur to members of the team. And thinking about scale is also a challenge. Um, I very much am a creative person and I like to be involved in projects. And sometimes that can distract me from thinking about some of the bigger picture stuff. And I have to be able to manage those two things. Um, I think that's probably the case for a lot of entrepreneurs. And that's why, you know, you have people at companies who go from CEO into some other role because they realize like, oh, maybe I'm not CEO. Like I'm much better at running the engineering team or I'm much better at product development. And so I think that's what I'm grappling with is I really like to be involved in the creative process, but I also know that I have to make all these bigger decisions. COVID threw a lot out the window. I mean, this the schedule this year has been really tough for planning. But um, I suspect even in a normal world, that um, that tension would still be there. Yeah. Um, as far as you, you've seen so much of podcasting over the 14 years that you've been in it, um, how has it changed and evolved and where where is it going from here? I mean, it's there's there's big money in it now and factories of podcasts into IP for Hollywood is really fascinating. And it means that. Uh, all the big media organizations are launching podcasts left and right with the idea of turning podcasts into a hit Netflix series or some kind of film. And so at one end of the spectrum, podcasts are this really interesting experimentation tool where you can, at a fairly minimal budget compared to what it would take to develop a pilot series, test out an idea and then send it off to other creative agencies. So like that's one end of the spectrum and that's why a lot of big money is getting into it. Um, On the other end of the spectrum, there are record numbers of podcasts being developed every year. And we now I think have a million, almost a million and a half podcasts um, that have been logged by Spotify and Apple. And because the medium is so accessible, the recording equipment is a lot cheaper, and the distribution is very easy, um, there's a lot of noise out there right now. And so even if you're launching a show with fairly high quality and a good budget behind it, it's a lot harder to make a splash. So the big money folks are dominating the top Apple charts and they are dominating listener attention. You have a lot of smaller podcasts that are making the space a lot more crowded and shows in the middle market with like fairly decent budgets can stand out, but it takes a ton more money and a ton more time to make those shows stand out. We were benef- we were lucky for with the Energy Gang and even with the earlier podcast at Renewable Energy World, we were first movers. So we got an audience overnight almost and Uh, what you find is some of the bigger podcasts that are just like talk shows have huge audiences because they were in it at at the very early stage. And a lot of the shows that are similar to them don't have a big audience because it's a lot harder to break out. So that's the biggest challenge right now. Um, The strength is that a lot of people can get in it. And the drawback is that it's harder to to get seen. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm happy you've been in it for as long as you have and are taking it in the direction that you're going with PostScript Audio. Um, Podcasting has been such a, a through line through your life and your career all the way through to your marriage. Uh, I know you met your wife through your podcast. Uh, tell tell me that story. Like, how, how did you meet? 
Are we at the meet cute now? Is this We're the, the, meet, meet, the yeah. meet cute moment? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, podcasts are a huge part of my relationship with my wife. We back when I was developing my first podcast, my wife was uh, listening. She was she was at Tufts and she was listening before you to met. the sh- before we met, and she listened to the show while running, and um, she reached out randomly to to ask about internships or jobs in the space and we had an email exchange going and I said oh well I'm actually coming to Boston uh for a conference like let's meet up and a friend came with me and the three of us had drinks and dinner and ended up staying out most of the night and we really hit it off and it was very clear that there was a spark there but we went our separate ways and she went off to do great things in government and in the energy space. And we would trade some emails. And I think we have some, one email. It's like, hey, what are you seeing for lithium ion battery pricing? And, <laughs> um, so that, that was the relationship. And then we lost contact. Um, um, in 2015, uh, the Facebook algorithm connected us. And we reconnected and started messaging. And in fact, I had a video of me on the dance floor uh, going kind of wild. And she just wrote in the comments, um, is it possible to fall in love with someone through a dance video? And (laughs) then we started uh, talking to each other. And I was like, oh, I'm going on another reporting trip in Boston. We should meet up again. And it was very clear from the start when we rekindled that relationship that like there was something there. And within within months i had packed up from dc and moved to boston and started our relationship and then we were married in 2017. it's the most romantic podcast story i've ever heard (laughs) (laughs) well now she's really sick of hearing me talk about podcasting (laughs) but we'll always hang our hats on that lovely story it's a great it's a really good story Um, This June, you celebrated your first Father's Day as a dad. Father's Day came 100 days after quarantine, and I'm wondering if you would be willing to read what you wrote on Twitter on June 21st of this year on Father's Day. Sure. Yeah, this is fairly heavy. We're going from light to heavy here. Uh, (laughs) Let me bring this up. Um, When coronavirus hit, I was in serious mental anguish. My brother had just died suddenly. I was struggling with being a new father. I stopped exercising. I stopped sleeping. I turned to alcohol. I would start my work days at 3 a.m. and work late at night. I became deranged. It was impossible for me to distinguish between small and big things. I couldn't let anything go. I was filled with tension and anger all the time. A therapist told me I was manic. He suggested I take lithium for the mania. This was all hidden from my professional life behind a microphone. Then the lockdown hit. I hunkered down with my wife and baby in a frenzied state. I had a clear choice. Do something about my mental health or face unknown consequences. It frightened me to think about how I would act in a state of lockdown, the way I was taking care of myself. No childcare, losing business, no leaving the house. A recipe for disaster, right? But then something happened. Somehow the confines of the situation created an opportunity for me to get my mind straight. The lack of choice, or the clarity of choice, was a blessing. I forced myself to sleep. My half-work, half-parenting days forced me to work more intelligently. I abandoned all alcohol and enhancing substances except caffeine. I slowly cleaned up my diet, and I created a regimented exercise routine. Totally simple and ridiculously obvious stuff, right? It's hard to describe the radical changes to my psyche I've seen over the last hundred days. I re-engineered my brain. I'm much closer to the person I want to be for my wife and little girl, the person that I know I am. 
It gives me chills hearing it. I feel like it takes a lot of courage and bravery to share something like that with yourself, let alone the world. What's it like hearing that now? Um, well, it's a reminder of how much work I had to put in and still have to put in during these really difficult times. Um, it's it's pretty emotional because I definitely became a person that I didn't expect to become. Um, I mean, the lack of sleep and the stress around having a new baby and um, just not taking care of myself was threw me in a completely unexpected direction. And it took me a long time to dig out of that hole. And then every week I, you know, had to come behind the microphone and put on the Stephen Lacey face that people know and hear. And that was very difficult. Um, I mean, it, I, it reminds me of the work that I still have to do, right? I, 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 I'm constantly striving in my personal life and even as an entrepreneur to put the work in to get closer to that person that I know I am. Mm. For someone who is where you were at your worst in that description, what would you want them to know? That it doesn't have to be this hard, that you don't have to hold on to so many things. My biggest weakness is that I hold on to things so tightly and I let them, I can let them spiral. And that can often be a very good strength in an entrepreneur in that like I really care about each and every detail. I have like a running list in my head of the things that I need to do and I'm able to pick and choose from that list. But what happens and what happened during this period is that I just have a list of things, some many of which are not important, some of which are very important, and I can't distinguish between them. And so I need to constantly remind myself of like how to better prioritize because that is um, a big piece of that that inability to prioritize can be a big piece of how I mentally spiral. Hmm. I think it's such a common experience for so many people, and yet it's something that's often stigmatized and we feel like we can't talk about it. And I think one of your greatest strengths is your willingness to be vulnerable in a way that is relatable because everyone's facing struggles and and to have somebody who you admire and respect share theirs is really powerful and meaningful. So I think on behalf of a lot of people, I wanna thank you for being willing to to share. Um, The last question, of course. Oh, for our high voltage round is as part of your your mental health, your physical health, um, exercise is really important to you. You used to do competitive powerlifting. You can deadlift 500 pounds. I recently started lifting during the shutdown. I'm deadlifting 135 pounds. So I'm curious what advice you have for me. <laughs> uh, actually, it's 600 pounds. 600. Uh, oh man, get these not facts now. right. <laughs> that was a few years ago. Uh, so I, and I should tell people, some people might confuse powerlifting with, uh, bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. are not the same thing. So it's lifting for strength instead of aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's been hugely beneficial. Some of that has taken a hit, particularly in the last like six months in terms of physical exercise because of the number of productions that we have going on, but it's always there as a central tool. Um, I don't. I, I I don't often talk about this, but the yeah when I was competitive powerlifting, I um, 
deadlifted 600 pounds, squatted 500 pounds, and bench pressed 345 pounds. So I was 50 pounds heavier than That's I am now. I... So you're seeing a much different version of Stephen Lacey when, when all that was happening. But anyway, the physical exercise piece is so crucial, I think, to good performance. One of the things that's kept me healthy is outside of this door in this closet, I actually have a gym that's been that's been built. I have a powerlifting gym like with with a ton of weights. Um, so that's really helped me during lockdown. Awesome. We are going to transition into our high voltage round. These are quick questions with about 10 second answers. As you know, the first question is, if you were to be an animal, what animal would you be and why? But I don't want you to answer yet. I want to tell you that I asked Catherine Jigger and Shale what animal they think you would be. So I'm going to tell you all three animals, and then I want you to choose who you oh. think said each animal. Okay, that's good. So the three animals like are a badger, a wolf, and a dolphin. Jigger said badger. Catherine said <laughs> wolf. Uh, what's the third one? A dolphin? Shale dolphin, said dolphin. Yeah. You got Shale right. Um, so Shale said dolphin because you are very smart, kind of hyper, and you wake up early in the morning. Um, but Catherine and Jigger, you got flipped. Catherine said you're a badger, quote, for obvious reasons. <laughs> and Jigger said you're a wolf. You're very social, but also value your alone time. Yes. But what I, is your actual animal? I chose the lyre bird, which is an Australian bird that can mimic any sound. Uh, it can mimic any sort of machinery. It can mimic uh, other birds or animals and even sometimes mimic human voice. And the reason why I chose it is because to be a good interviewer um, and really just a good human being, you have to be able to mimic the other person in a way that gets them to open up. And so I thought that was really appropriate. And I picked the lyre bird because we have a, my daughter is really into birds and we have a bunch of bird books. And I've always been fascinated by the lyre bird um, in her bird book. And so I thought it was, its its attributes were very appropriate for what makes a good skill set for an interviewer. It sounds perfect. You were the first and only what it takes liar bird. <laughs> um, next question is, if you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? I would probably be a ski bum working as a lift attendant and writing magazine articles. What kind of articles? About skiing or about action sports or about nature and like hiking and you know, like an editor at Outside Magazine or something, like testing out ski gear and, and working in the cafeteria at a, at a, at a ski mountain. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Oh, my wife has been huge in, in um, really promoting my success. And she has a lot of entrepreneurial bones in her body. And she gave me the opportunity to exercise mine first. So I'll always be grateful for that. Uh, in addition, I have two mentors, Scott Clavenna, the co-founder of Green Tech Media, Woo, Scott. Uh, who is Former an extraordinary human being, and then Jim Callahan, who is the uh, co-founder of, of Renewable Energy World. Both of them were very much like um, father figures to me and gave me extraordinary opportunities and were true friends who gave me the best advice possible. So any the, the qualities that you would look for in a mentor, they both they both had through and through. When have you failed? Well, I know that everybody says I fail regularly and I feel like I do. Um, I mean, I think that uh, the, going back to, you know, the, the, the struggles with mental health, um, I feel like when I'm, if I'm at my depths 
and I'm unable to pull myself out of them, I feel like I'm I'm failing. Um, that's that's a, not a good feeling to have. And luckily, I've developed the tools to try to get beyond that. Um, we've launched some bad podcasts too, <laughs> so we failed there. Uh, and sometimes when I'm not giving proper direction to people and I'm assuming that someone has all the information and I'm, I'm not being as communicative as I could be, I think I'm, I'm failing then. And I really, like, I, I really want to be a better manager and someone who is giving people the tools all the time to do their best work. And when I don't do that, uh, it really makes me reevaluate myself. Mm. What is the best investment you've ever made? Definitely Sandy, my wife. Um, uh, I think for the reasons that I identified above, she's been extremely supportive. The other is um, the the powerlifting gym that I have over next to me. I mean, just we we have like a thousand pounds of weights in there and kettlebells and all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, I, I'm taking up the entire basement with by putting my recording studio and gym down here. And so my wife has been very good about <laughs> giving giving up that space. But that is that is just absolutely crucial for maintaining my mental health. So the um, those those are the two best investments. They go hand in hand. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe that? I was a, that I'm a chill person. <laughs> Apparently, I'm a badger. I used to think I was chill, and uh, I I know that I am very much not a chill person. Mm. And I really like I grew up with like very much ingrained in like kind of the counterculture movement. I was fascinated by the counterculture movement. I listened to a lot of um, you know like Grateful Dead, and I just thought I was this chill person. And like in reality, I look back at who I was over time and who I am now, and I'm like very much a very neurotic person. <laughs> it's good to be self-aware. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Disinformation. Um, I would change the vulnerability of human psychology. Um, uh, I'm really dismayed by the world we live in and how easily manipulated people are. And I would want to give us some more mental tools to not be so easily manipulated. Mm. If there, one of those is podcasts. Woo! <laughs> if there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? My brother, who died just a few weeks before lockdown, who for two decades struggled with severe mental health issues and addiction issues. You know, we lived the opioid crisis firsthand in the darkest ways for many, many years. And uh, I, I just, he, there were a lot of times when I didn't see my brother or talk to him and he always said how proud of, how proud I made him. But we, I would just want him to hear how things are going because, um, you know, I'll never get to talk to him again. Um, I would also want to, my, my daughter, Acadia, to listen to this as well because, I want her to know that I'm the time I'm spending doing my work is to to try to do some good in the world and help give other people the tools to create exponential change. Other people have cried on the podcast. I have not yet cried on the podcast, but this is the closest that I've come. Last question to build a successful company. What it takes is relentlessness in an unrelenting world. 
Wow. Beautiful close to a really special interview. It means a lot to me that you did this. Thanks so much for being on the show and sharing everything that you did, Stephen. Thank you so much. It's, it's been a lot of fun. And that's going to do it for another episode of What It Takes. Thanks again for listening to my own personal journey. I am hugely thankful for the people who've listened over the years and who find meaning in this show. You give me a lot of meaning. So thank you. You can give us a shout out on social media if you want to share clips from the show or you want to suggest some story ideas or people who you want us to interview. And don't forget that What It Takes is now a spinoff show. So go to your podcast app, just type in What It Takes, and we're going to have a feed there where you can listen to lots of other great entrepreneurial stories in this space over the coming year. Thanks for being here. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'll catch you next time.